0: As you know, we are doing a study on the book of James. So if you have your Bible or your electronic device, turn to James chapter 1. And we finished last week, I believe, uh, we are starting back in verse 18 of chapter 1, verses 18. Uh, the, the, um, the second part of today's lesson is about discrimination and partiality Uh, and what have you, being a bigot, what have you. Uh, And so I had to look far and deep for that uh, topic in the Seinfeld episodes, but we found it. Okay, so in James, uh, the author James, the half-brother of Jesus, as we talked about, and he's also uh, the head elder of the church in Jerusalem. And so it's called Hebrews because he's writing it to the Hebrews, And we see uh, in Acts chapter 7, the end of Acts chapter 7, a tremendous persecution arose against uh, Hebrews who had formed the first church and believed in Jesus as their Savior. Uh, And that persecution drove them out of the city of Jerusalem. So James and the other apostles are still in Jerusalem of the church. And so he's writing this letter to all the Jews who have moved out and scattered around in the territories around Jerusalem. Jerusalem and in Judea Um, and because they were undergoing so much many difficulty they'd lost because they'd come to Christ they'd lost their family they lost their friends they lost their job and so they were going through a lot of hardship and a lot of trouble and so James is writing them this letter to encourage them to live their faith live your faith and so uh so he's as it says here the uh uh, the purpose is to encourage and exhort Christians to life of maturity through faith. A call to applied Christianity. Uh, the theme is faith in action. Everything he says, every, he goes through every subject, uh, basically saying this is what true faith looks like in action. So if you have the faith, you should be living this way. That's the concept that James is, is after. Last week, we saw two of the things that he's, he wants to consider. First of all, the trials, the tribulation, the trouble, the problems that they're going through. He says you should actually see God involved in them and, and rejoice in the providence of God, how he's even going to help you in the trouble. And then secondly, in uh, verse 13, he says, uh, now the next issue that you want to see faith in action is when it comes to temptations. You're going to be tempted in every way, you need to not blame God like people tend to do. Why would you make me like this and I, have, you know, I didn't have a choice, I couldn't help it. Well, there are all the different excuses. He says, uh, we take responsibility for our own actions and we come to God in humility, right? Uh, and then uh, today, we're going to look at, first of all, the response to the Word of God. When you hear the Word of God, when you hear uh, the stories about Jesus and his teaching Uh, what do you do? And so he's going to say, you know, in the very first deal, he's going to give commands of what our active faith should be, is to be, we we listen intently and we learn, so quick to hear, he says, be a good disciple and a good student of the word, and slow to speak, check it against God's work, uh, and make sure before you just blurt stuff it out or argue against things, Uh, and then, of course, slow to anger. Don't be angry at the truth. You know, when you get admonished, when someone says you're doing something wrong, you need to change, uh, that's a sin or whatever, the typical response, human response, is to defend yourself, is to jump right back at them, you know, to go on the attack or, or get defensive. And he's saying, don't, don't get angry at the, tr- at the truth. Let the truth change your life, all right? Uh, and so, uh, slow to anger... Is there such a thing as righteous anger? We're going to talk about that in a minute. So uh, when we talk about this quick to hear and slow to speak and how our, what is our response to the Word of God, I couldn't help but think of a Bible study about a year ago. Uh, this friend of mine uh, has a Bible study, and he's always talking about it, and he's, he's got a lot of guys that go to it. And he said, you've got to come to our Bible study. And I've kind of been reluctant uh, because of how I know him, <laughs> and I said, okay, finally, I said, I've been trying to get him to come to mind, you know, so I said, okay, I'll go to your, so I go to his Bible study, and I, what it is, is a supposed Bible study, the first thing I noticed, is that nobody had a Bible, <laughs> I was God, what kind of deal is this, a Bible study, and nobody has a Bible, uh, they, and they don't have a teacher, they just have like, this guy acts like a moderator, you know, Uh, And they really just took turns giving various opinions about various topics. Uh, And so the net result, you know, at the end of the day, I said, well, what really happened here? I was looking around. And they just gave people a chance to come and fellowship and talk about themselves and and share their troubles and everything. You know, there's really nothing, no biblical concept. really nothing about Jesus. And, uh, you know, just just to tell you kind of how... I probably won't go. be going back. Uh, one of the things uh, this guy says, you know, they all kind of passed around and took turns talking. And this guy said, you know, one of the things that bothers me about the Bible is, well, you know, like the Gospel of John we've been talking about. The Gospel of John, uh, you know, John was executed by Herod way before Jesus was even arrested or crucified or, or anything. So how could John have written the Gospel of John? How are we supposed to believe it? And I go, how? <laughs> you know, so the guy said, yeah, yeah, what, what's, the, what's the problem? And I said, uh, you've got two different Johns. You're talking about John the Baptist, you know, who, who died, you know, right when Jesus began his ministry uh, at the hands of Herod, cut off his head, of course. The apostle John, who was a fisherman and in business with Simon Peter, He's the apostle, and he's the one that wrote uh, the gospel of John. And then the guy says, oh, well, never mind. (laughs) 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 And the whole Bible study was like that, you know. And uh, so, you know, we see what James says, you know. This group was quick to jump to conclusions, quick to judge, And quick to offer advice without foundation. You know, just a bunch of opinions and, well, what I think is, and like that. Uh, And so, it was really just the opposite of what James is talking about here in his letter. Uh, And we see uh, in James chapter 1, verse 18, if you look at it with me. Uh, James says, talking about what God has done for us in the exercise of God's will. So God did something. He willed something to happen, and then he had the action. He exercised that will. What did he do? He brought us forth. That's a birth uh, metaphor there. He birthed us. He brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. The word of God is the truth. He brought us forth, we were saved by believing the gospel message, which is the word of God. So God did that. It was his action that did that. So that, as a result, we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his his creatures. Or the first one to bear fruit among his people. Uh, And so... Uh, he not only saved us, but he had a purpose in saving us that we would be active in serving him after that. So uh, the gospel that uh, we believe, James is saying, will change your heart, change the way you think, and you should naturally then uh, be active in God's service representing him, and you should be a different person than you were before. If there is a God in heaven and you believe in him, certainly that makes a big difference in your life, right? I mean, it's got to. And that's what James is, James is talking about here. So as you uh, study the word of God and you hear it, you allow it to change your life and you respond to it with action. And that's what he's talking about. So that's why he says uh, the first commands... Here in verse 19, three commands. So this you know. You've already been told this. You should know this, my beloved brethren. So we know he's talking to believers in the church. He's not talking to somebody he doesn't know or he doesn't know if they believe or not. These are professing Christians. They believe in Jesus as their Savior. So he says, "Uh, let me tell you something you already know. But let everyone be quick to hear. So listen intently, be good students, and listen to what the Word of God says and analyze it as you do. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak. So before you respond about it or talk about it, make sure you understand it. Make sure, you know, you've analyzed it and you've got got an understanding of it before you just start throwing wild stuff out there like people are prone to do. Then he goes on, uh, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and then slow to anger. And that, of course, uh, would be in the case where when you hear the word of God, and it in any way convicts you, how are you going to respond? So, I mean, when you hear, when you study like Romans 3.23, and it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, are you going to go, wait a minute, not me, you know? (laughs) Uh, which people are prone to do when you tell them they're sinners, rotten to the core. <laughs> right? Uh, and so he's saying, uh, don't be angry at the conviction that the word of God will bring to your heart. Because that's one thing that it does. Uh, just some passages that we've got. Um, the importance of scripture. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy three sixteen: all scripture which is what James is talking about, the Word, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's inspired by God, and therefore it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. That's what somebody might get mad about, is getting corrected, right? So, uh, it's the Word of God uh, is inspired by God, and it's for a purpose. God has given it to us, has given His inspired Word of God uh, in order to teach us, uh, to reproof or admonish us, change our bad habits, you might say, uh, and also for training in righteousness. And the result then should be that the man of God be adequate and equipped for every good work. So uh, the Word of God comes into your heart, and it's active. It, it's life-changing. It moves you. It makes you a different person. And you respond to it... Uh, as he says, for uh, reproof and correction for training and righteousness, so you pass that on, you might say, to others as well. Uh, And the man of God, the person who has responded to the word of God, then will be adequate, equipped for every good work. What else? Uh, Hebrews 4 says about the word of God, the word of God is living and active. That's a hard thing to get your arms around, right? Wait a minute, this is just uh, black and white letters on a page. No, it's more than that. It's inspired by God, and it changes lives. It literally changes lives. So he's saying the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's a metaphor that cuts deep into the heart and the soul, the inner person, so to speak, Right? So it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. It goes all the way down to your inner man. And then uh, for 2 Peter 1, he says, For by these he has granted to us, so, so the word of God that he's given us, he, he has granted us magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So as you receive the word of God and it changes your life, and you live in accordance to it. You become partakers of the divine nature. God has also indwelt all believers with his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uses the Word of God to change our lives. See, And so that's why, how he can say we become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, we are obeying the Word of God at the Holy Spirit is working in our heart at the same time, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we're no longer a citizen of this world. we got to live here for a while, but we're not of the world. Uh, we are now partakers of the divine nature. We're now uh, spiritual, spiritually alive, spiritual beings that are serving God. Okay? Um, so we'll get to this in just a minute. Uh as he says here, uh, as we just said, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And what you might want to uh, think about for a minute is, go back to that. Okay, in Ephesians 4.15, uh, slow to speak, right? He says, okay, how, how do we respond and how do we talk to each other? speaking the truth in love think about how difficult that is you know you know people and maybe you are the people that says I just tell it like it is right you've ever heard that before and uh, people really like some people really like the shock value of that I just tell it like remember Howard Cosell I remember on Monday Night Football you know he'd say some outrageous comment and Don Meredith would call him on it and he'd go, just telling it like it is, dandy. Is that pretty good? This group can't even remember Howard Cosell, so I got away with it. And so Don Meredith would say, oh, telling it like it is? Really, Howard? You wear a toupee, you changed your name, you've had a nose job. Uh, And you tell it like it is? Is that right? Uh, But we, on the other hand, We speak the truth, but we do it in love. Now, that's a pretty good trick to be bluntly honest with somebody, but to do it in a way that you don't hurt their feelings, right? And so uh, that is what we are about. Uh, We love our neighbors, and you even love them to the extent that you would admonish them for bad behavior or whatever, but you would do it in such a humble fashion and out of love, that he would, they would know, they would realize the way you did it, that you meant well, that you were trying to actually help them, that you admonished them out of love for them. Uh, very much like Christ did his disciples all through his ministry. You know, his disciples were always making blunders and, and errors, and he was always correcting them, but they knew that he loved them, right? Uh, and then, of course, uh, he says, be angry. So, apparently, this is a command to be angry. And I think what he's talking about here is have righteous anger. You know, Jesus was angry at times. You know, the the famous one is when he overturned the money changers and he yelled at them, you know, you've made the house of God, the house of prayer, you've made it into a robber's den. He was obviously angry, but it was righteous anger. There's a huge difference between righteous anger and selfish anger anger right so when someone uh would maybe admonish you with the word of god instead of receiving it maybe in the spirit that it was given you would come back defensively and that would be what we would say selfish anger or you maybe even come back and go oh yeah well what about you you know and you start listing all of their errors uh, so he says be angry so he's talking about righteous anger uh, We've all had that. People have offended you. They've hurt your feelings. Uh, Maybe they've slandered you. So you're angry about that, and you should be. But he says, do not sin. See, that's the key. How can you be angry and still not sin? And so the obvious example, you know, if someone slapped you, Jesus says, don't turn around and slap them back. Right? Turn the other cheek. Um, So you're not happy that you just got slapped. But you don't, in turn, you know, do the same thing. Uh, and so that's the key. How do you have that righteous anger? And he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So do something about it. Uh, so you confront the person in a loving way and you work it out. Or even if you can't work it out because of their response, you forgive them, Right? And, of course, Jesus says it's, it's in the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, you've been forgiven, and you must forgive others. And so forgiving someone just takes you. doesn't take them. You know, reconciling takes two, both of you. Uh, and you try to do that, but if you can't, the least you can do is forgive. And, of course, the Greek uh, phrase for forgiving in the New Testament is to let it go. To let it go. That's We have a hard time doing that, right? We want revenge. That's a natural thing is to get back at them, you know. Like somebody told me, they said, uh, I don't let the sun go down. I stay up and plot revenge. <laughs> right? Uh, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, and so uh, when he says here, don't be angry. So when someone uh, approaches you or you're studying the word and like the teacher says something that convicts you, you don't say, Oh, well, I don't believe that. I mean, I've having done this a million times, I've actually had people go, Well, I don't believe that. I believe blah blah blah. And I said, Well, what's your foundation for that? What's your source? Well, that's just the way I feel. <laughs> and I said, No one cares how you feel. Uh, this is the foundation for the truth, and this is why we call this a Bible study. This is not a Jeff study or a Charlie study. This is a Bible study, right? Uh, and so he can say these commands, and basically he's telling them, you know, you need to listen intently, let the Word of God soak in and convict you, all, like he said, cut you all the way down to the soul of the spirit before you respond to these things quickly. Like in that Bible study I was telling you I went to, uh, they were just, you know, going back and forth at each other. You know, God said, well, I think this. Oh, uh, you're wrong about that. I think this, you know. I mean, it wasn't even, uh, they weren't even listening to what anybody else was saying, you know, because they were thinking of their next argument is all they were doing, right? So uh, he goes on to say, for the anger of man, this selfish anger, uh, doesn't accomplish anything. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So it doesn't have the response that God desires you to have when you get angry about it. Therefore, verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility. So as you're admonished, as you're cut, as you're convicted of the truth, you've got to put aside all the bad habits, put aside everything that, that you're doing wrong, okay? And then what remains is your humility, having, having, you know, taken it so well, and you receive the word implanted. I love that phrase. You receive the word, the gospel, the truth of God implanted. Think of that, that image, that metaphor. It's like you plant seeds, and then it grows, and it sprouts roots, right and it produces fruit so it's a great metaphor for what the word of god can do if you let it if you yield to it yield your will to god's will and let it change your life it will grow like a little seed and it'll sprout roots and become implanted in you so to speak so let that happen and it is able to save your souls Uh, And remember, in the New Testament, there's three different uses of the word salvation. The same Greek word, soteriology, is the study of salvation, or soter, is to save. And it's used for all three. One is to be saved from the penalty of sin. So you were, you know, going to that wrong place. Now you're going to heaven. So you're saved from the penalty of sin. Uh, And then even now, as we live, you can be saved Uh, from the power of sin so the power of the worlds and the flesh and the devil that we talked about last week uh, the word of God can help you you can be saved from the power that it exerts on you that peer pressure that is always on you the lies of the world they're always against you that sound so sweet but they're wrong you know if it feels good do it the me generation what do you, the ends justify the means? You can sit here all day and think of the lies of the world that people really buy into, right? Um, but he says you uh, have the truth implanted in you, and that should cause you to give up all that stuff in humility. But that takes—it does take humility to do that because you got to give up all that ego-driven proud stuff and you got to come to the Lord in humility and let him change you and make a new person out of you okay so in doing so what will happen verse 22 and by the way the third salvation I don't think I got there but the third salvation is when God takes you out of the presence of sin which is in this world so when you go uh, when you're saved resurrection you go to the kingdom of God so to speak You're saved from the presence of the sin. So the penalty, the power, and the presence uh, is what he's talking about. And the word of God is involved in all three of those. So you, verse 22, in your humility with the word implanted, you will prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So there's a lot of people out there saying, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe in Christ and all that. And they live in an alternative lifestyle, I guess you might call it, you know, alternative to that, that's biblical. Um, and so he's saying they delude themselves. They deceive themselves because they're not in the word and the word is not, is not ruling over their life. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror this is an image of you know you you look in a mirror and you see yourself and then you go away later and think boy, i'm one handsome devil (laughs) and you forgot about all the wrinkles and all the blemishes and all the bad things that were in that mirror that's what he's saying you deceive yourself right uh I look in the mirror now, you know, and, I, and when I look, I go, "What happened? <laughs> All those years went by, right?" Uh, and he's saying, "Don't deceive yourself. I remember the truth of what you looked at in the mirror in the same way. Spiritually, remember the truth of who you were before Christ. You are a sinner, uh, destined for hell. Now, you are saved and forgiven." and your life is changing, and you're a different person. That's the truth. But someone uh, who doesn't change looks in the mirror and just somehow doesn't notice that they're sinners and that they need to be saved. That's what he's saying, okay? So it's a a great uh, metaphor that he uses there. You're like somebody who looks in a mirror and, and forgets what you naturally look like, but instead goes away thinking they look good. Oh, I'm fine. I'm okay. You're okay, you know? You saw the book, right? Everything's cool. No, it's not cool. Everything's not okay. So verse 24, once he looked at himself and, and then gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. <laughs> he was a sinner and Christ saved him and he's already forgotten. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, what's the law of liberty? It's the gospel. It saves you and frees you up. Before, before Christ came into your life, what would you think? You thought, I am going to be judged by what I do and what my performance is and how I've kept, you know, my moral standard. And I can tell you that that's not good. You don't want to be judged by that. You want to be judged by what Christ did, right? And that's that's the difference. That's the law of liberty. We're now free. We're free of being judged by the law. If you want to be judged by the law, take the Ten Commandments, and you and I will sit down together, and I'll show you how you've broken all ten of them. (laughs) And then we'll talk about whether you want the law of liberty, the gospel, or you want to be judged by the law. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Don't judge me by the law. Give me the law of liberty. Because I can't stand up to it. So, the one who, the law of liberty, if you abide in it, not having a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, so you're actually active in your faith, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, because, you know, people go around talking, that, you know, I'm religious. I go here, I do that. I've actually gotten letters from people that have come to Bible study. He I don't need to come to Bible study because I'm very religious and I go to church every day and I do this and I do that. They give me this list of stuff they do. And I go, who cares? I don't care what you do. You know, do you have Christ in your life and are you forgiven by what Christ has done? That's what's important. Because you can't live up to God's standard. But you... Uh, as a believer now, have the opportunity to become active in his service, an effectual doer. And you will be blessed by him. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, you just say whatever you want, very profane, etc., you deceive yourselves. This man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion. You to know it, pure and undefiled religion. In that day, uh, there was no social programs. There was no food stamps, no social security, no Medicare, nothing. And when someone uh, lost their husband, a lot of times they were just doomed because women had no rights, no help at all. Orphans, kids without parents had nobody to help them. So they were just out on the street. I mean, it wasn't good at all. So when James says, uh, this in verse 27 this is pure and undefiled religion the sight of god to visit orphans and widows in their distress he's saying how do you measure up when it comes to doing good deeds that cannot be returned i think we're all real good about calling somebody that owes us a favor say uh remember i gave money to your charity last year well This is my uh, first year in the uh, salesmanship club, and I need you to buy $5,000 worth of tickets. (laughs) Okay. Oh, God, I have to do that. You know, that's one thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You should definitely do all that. Don't send me any angry emails. (laughs) I shouldn't have used anybody's name. Uh, But what he's talking about, how do you respond to people that can't give back? He said, that is faith. That's giving in faith, okay? Unstained, he says, by the word, right? So, uh, the most exa- uh, obvious example of what he's been talking about here is teenagers. Teenagers, the, you know, would you tell your teenagers the truth, parents know what's right and best for them. They tell them the truth. What's the typical argument? they come back and it's a big argument everybody's doing it everybody's going I gotta go you gotta let me right what's the problem they live in two worlds teenagers live in two worlds they got a world at home with their parents that's stable and according to what's right and wrong and good direction but then they go to school or out with their peers their fellow kids teenagers And it's just the opposite. They want to go and be wild and crazy and have fun, pleasure. And everybody's telling them, we're going to do all this stuff, right? They live in two worlds. That's basically what James is talking about. We also live in two worlds. There is a godly spiritual realm and there is a world out there apart from God that wants to put the peer pressure on all of us And not respond to the word of God, but respond to what the world is saying and doing, right? So, the truth conflicts with what they think will make them happy and significant and pleasure, so they go with the other. And that's what James is talking about. If you respond to the word of God, it will make a difference and it will be revealed in your life, okay? Uh, and then the next topic uh, that he's that he's going here in chapter two, verse one through thirteen, is one the, the movie clip was really about is uh, faith and action. yeah, faith and action. But it's taking it's having partiality with evil motives. Yeah. So I mean, the most obvious example that he gives here as well is you're in church and let's just use a couple of examples that you're familiar with. John the Baptist comes in. You're the usher at church. John the Baptist comes in. Remember the description of John the Baptist? He lived in the wilderness, never took a shower, had a beard, wore a burlap sack, sandals, right? Rough looking character. So he comes in. Meanwhile, Mr. Potter you know, you know, Mr. Potter in the, the movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Mr. Potter comes in and he's, you know, he owns most of the city and everybody's afraid of him and he's super rich, you know, so you put Mr. Potter on the front row in the cushion seat and John the Baptist, we don't want anybody to really see this guy. You stick him in the very back row in the corner. Uh, and that's what he's talking about. The partiality with evil motives, right? Uh, and just a few passages of the New Testament about that. Because in the, old, in, in the first century, Roman Empire first century is what we're reading, where James was. Uh, you talk about uh, trouble between gender and races and what have you. They had We got nothing compared to what they had. Half the Roman Empire were slaves. So it's a good chance that half of the church were slaves. So you go to church and you might be sitting right next to... A free person right next to a slave, right? You can imagine how difficult that was initially for people to accept that. Uh, women had absolutely no rights. In the Roman Empire, the only person that had rights was a white male patrician. They had, different, they had kind of a caste system in the Roman Empire. The patricians and the plebeians and the slaves. And only the patricians had any rights at all. Uh, that Rome was a republic, but only the patricians could vote. You know? So women didn't vote. Slaves couldn't vote. So, I mean, (laughs) they had some class and uh, differences, and they had plenty of discrimination. So it's a big deal in the first century when James wrote this. But what did Jesus say? There is now, in Christ... Neither Jew nor Greek. It doesn't matter what nationality anymore. There's neither slave nor free man. They're all the same. There's neither male nor female. God doesn't recognize gender as far as your spirituality. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the church. This is the church. Uh, and then in, I think it's second, First Samuel, how, how does God judge you? Like the Lord told to Samuel, don't look at someone's appearance the height of the stature, because I've rejected. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. Only God looks at the heart. God knows what's in your heart. And that's how he judges you. Uh, and 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, Look, we no longer recognize people as to race or gender or whether they have money or don't have money. We only recognize people. If they have Christ or they don't have Christ. There's only two kinds of people. You either have Christ or you don't in God's view. We recognize people differently. But what does God see? You have Christ or you do not. We now recognize people uh, only in a spiritual sense. And everybody that has Christ is a new creature. A new spiritual being. The old things passed away; all that worldly stuff, and all that discrimination and partiality, gone. In God's view, now only new things have come. We're different, and so obviously, what He's saying in uh, chapter two, one through thirteen, is we need to act different, treat people better. Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus teaching says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, so all of us born naturally here in this world, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And remember who John, you know, we just described John the Baptist. Roughest looking guy you'll ever see. And uh, somebody asked for John the Baptist's diet for lunch next week. Remember what it was? Locusts and honey. Wild honey and locusts or whatever. You know, bugs. He's a rough character. And so, what did Jesus say? He is the greatest man that has ever been born. Wow. And yet, he's this rough character that lives in the wilderness. Uh, how many banks did John the Baptist own? Uh, how much money did he have? Nothing, nothing. Goose egg. Uh, how, what kind of wardrobes did he have? Goose egg. I mean, you go through about 100 questions. What car did he drive? Goose egg. Where was his home? Goose egg. Nothing. Nothing. And yet he's the greatest man who ever lived in God's view. The good news is that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, so in heaven, everybody there will be even greater than John the Baptist. How so? Because there are no sinners in heaven. In the world we live in, everyone is a sinner in God's view. Not mine. I, I don't make judgment. But in God's view, uh, everyone needs a savior. See? But in the kingdom of God, we will all be saved and forgiven in the resurrection, no longer have sinful bodies. That's what he means. What else we got? Nothing? Okay. Oh, <laughs> just on a roll. <laughs> and so he says here uh, in chapter 2, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism for some people and not others. For if a man comes into your assembly with a fine, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man, dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say, Sit in a good place, and you say to the poor man, stand over there in the corner, or whatever, sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? So he's talking about selfish partiality, and don't confuse that. Uh, There are some cases where we absolutely need partiality. We absolutely need discrimination. What would that be? Uh, You know, anybody have any teenage daughters? When you're much longer, you ever have any daughters? Well, if a guy shows up, you know, with a mohawk and a goatee, and he's got a van with a mattress in back, you need to discriminate. You're not going out with this guy, right? If John Dillinger walks in the bank, you need to discriminate because he's going to rob it, and you could go on and on. You get my point. There are some cases where you really do need to discriminate, but uh, he says what he's talking about is a selfish. uh, It's like taking a bribe is kind of the, the metaphor that he's using there, right? Uh, a joke. My favorite story: the, uh, the young man from Boston was trying to get a job at a Chicago bank, and he gave his references. So they asked the people in Boston to write references, and they came back and said, "The young man is born of the finest heritage in Boston: the first families of Boston, the Saltonstalls and the Kellys and the Kennedys, and on and on and on." And we can trace his heritage all the way back. To the royal family in England. And the Chicago bank wrote back. We did not want the young man for breeding purposes. <laughs> just work. Exactly. Uh, and so we don't care about any of that anymore. And so he says verse 12. So you say if you profess Christ so act like him. As those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. So you're going to be judged by God and given grace and mercy. And so you give grace and mercy also to, to each other. Uh, and, of course, that, that uh, you know, brings up, you know, uh, as I said before, do you want to be judged by the law or judged by what Christ did? You know, and it comes down to do you want grace or do you want justice when it comes to your judgment? I recommend Grace. Anybody here want justice instead of grace? Okay. Uh, I hope nobody ever raises their hand when I ask that. Uh, And so let me conclude with the parable of the Good Samaritan that that comes down to all these things. Uh, The parable of the Good Samaritan, you're all familiar with it. And it all all started with a lawyer who asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He said, love your neighbor. It's the greatest commandment. And the guy says, well, who is your neighbor? He asked that. Because he was trying to avoid some people who might, he might be able to exclude, right? So it was an inappropriate question. He should have asked how he could love anyone who needed it, right? That he had an opportunity to help. And you know the story, the, on the road to Jericho and a guy gets robbed and beat up and stomped and fallen by the road and... The, uh, the priest comes by and looks at him goes, ugh, goes to the other side. Somebody asked me, why didn't he help him? I said, because he'd already been robbed. Yeah. So he keeps going. And then a Levite, who's supposed to be a really good person, uh, he doesn't stop. He keeps going. And then a Samaritan, and Jesus used that for shock value, because in that day Jews hated Samaritans. They loathed them. They were enemies. So by using a Samaritan, it would really shock them, you know. So this Samaritan came and helped the guy, put him up in the, on his beast and carried him to the inn and paid the bill and the whole deal, right? That was the point that Jesus was making, that who is my neighbor is inappropriate since he's trying to limit those who he had to help. The real question for him should be, how can I be a good neighbor? Also, we need to realize that our neighbor is anyone who has a need that we can meet. And that's the way we need to respond to all people in the church and out of the church. Uh, And if we believe in Christ and we're trying to follow him, that is exactly what we will do. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. With your word, it is powerful. It is active. If we let it, you want to implant it. You want it to grow. You want us to change us from the inside out. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us do that and that we would become new spiritual people as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.